Hello, guys. How are we doing? Good, good. My name is Clint Kroll, and it's a pleasure to be here tonight. And I am truly, truly excited to be here tonight. And I know that that may seem strange to some of you, but it's actually because I don't know many of you that I'm actually excited to be here. You know, as you find your Bibles, go ahead and bring them out. Um, you know, meeting adults can be a little bit boring. Usually the conversation revolves around what type of work you're in and how many kids you have, and then that's kind of the end of the road. But I'm excited to be here with you guys tonight. You guys are young and vibrant and have dreams and aspirations and hobbies, and you do fun things with your friends. It's it's an exciting time in your life. Myself, I'm a pretty simple guy, I think. I really have kind of two interests, and that is wristwatches and lifting weights. And I see some of you laughing. I know what you're thinking. I'm not lying. I do lift weights. It's hard to tell. Um, but I guess I should be a little more clear. I actually like uh, power lifting. It's a little different. It's kind of a, its own animal. Power lifting is all about one thing. And as you can see, it's not necessarily the physique. It's about how much weight you can put on the bar and move it. Okay? It's all about that. It's really the wild, wild west of the exercise world. Okay? Pretty much anything can go in this community of power lifting. You, the bros don't care. I mean, if you want to wear a squat suit, if you want to wear a bench shirt, if you want to deadlift sumo style, which is clearly cheating, it's all okay. As long as you're putting more ball, or weight on the bar next time, that's all the bros care about, okay? Well, there is actually one cardinal sin in powerlifting, okay? Listen close. If you get popped, with fake weights on the bar, buddy, you're toast, okay? You're Chris Cuomo, you're Sylvester Stallone, you, you're done in the powerlifting community if you get caught with fake weights on the bar. Now, let me ask you this. Why would someone put fake weights on the bar? Are fake weights going to help you get stronger? No, absolutely. Does anyone, while they're at the house by themselves, do they put fake weights on the bar at home when they're working out by themselves? <laughs> Some of you are shaking your heads. Okay, most people probably don't do that. When would someone put fake weights on the bar? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, in powerlifting, you loud music, bad attitude, it's okay. Fake weights, it's anathema. It's, you're done. You're toast. But, you see, fake weights make you look stronger. They actually allow you to lie within the community. And as Christians, we know that lying is wrong. But why is lying wrong? Can anyone tell me why lying is wrong? And, I, and I'm not looking for a verse in the Bible that says, don't lie. I, I'm thinking, why does the Bible tell us not to lie? Anybody have any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. It can hurt other people, certainly. Being deceitful, yes. 
Yes. Being dishonest. Yeah, there are a lot. Of, oh, go ahead. Yeah. God. Well, you're headed in the right direction. That's right where I'm going. Yeah, there are a lot of harmful side effects of lying from hurt to mistrust to various injustices in the world. But the core issue with lying is really more than that. You see, as image bearers, we were put on this earth to reflect God's image here on earth. And any time that we lie, we are misrepresenting God's moral character because God is truth, just as you said. God is truth. And today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you, of course, to turn there. I have the verses on the screen, but I'd love you to have your Bibles out with you. I'm going to turn there myself. Today, we're in Acts chapter 5. Our timeless truth for the verses which we'll read here in just a moment are that lies are conceived in sinful hearts that do not fear God. Now, this is true all the time, in every place, and everywhere. Lies are conceived in sinful hearts that do not fear God. And in studying our verses today, you may find yourself asking, why did God deal so severely with these two people and the lie that they told? Well, in answering that question, what I want to do tonight is communicate to you, to you from God's Word the three stages of sin that you can expect to experience any time that you lie. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, we come to you again grateful that you hear us. Lord, uh, we thank, we're thankful for your word that, and what it's going to teach us tonight. We pray that uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would illuminate your word to us, cause us to understand, but not only understand, but apply it, to see real change in our lives. And may you receive all the glory for anything good that comes from tonight. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our lesson today is going to be a prime example. It's always important, but this lesson is going to be a prime example in why context is king for interpretation and application. Interpretation is, of course, understanding what the Bible is saying, applying it. Application is, what are we going to do with it now that we understand it? And this is a prime example of why context is so important. The book of Acts, can anyone tell me the theme of the book of Acts? Good. All right, great job, great job. Yeah, Acts is all about God creating and building His church. And contextually, Acts chapter 5, we're going to find it in Peter's portion of Acts. And it's all about God establishing and growing and protecting the church in Jerusalem. Now, this is a unique time in redemptive history where we're going to see many miracles taking place. Many miracles. And we know that these miracles, God uses them to verify the message that the apostles are bringing. And we see that 
in the book of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. It says, After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, that's the apostles, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. So here we are in Acts. Jesus has resurrected. He has ascended. He has sent His Spirit who is now building and uh, undergirding the growth of the church here in Jerusalem. But now finally for our passages that we're going to look at tonight, I want to read them to you. Acts chapter 5. But we're actually going to start back in chapter 4, verse 32. And it's going to take a minute to read through this. I'd appreciate your focus here as we read several verses of Scripture here. We're going to start in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and read through 5, verse 11. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were in common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now, Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up, covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now, there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. Then they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over all who heard, over the whole church and over all who heard these things. The timeless truth of our verse today is that lies are conceived in sinful hearts that do not fear God 
And we will see that truth today as we go along here looking at the three stages of sin that you can expect to experience any time that you lie. The first stage that we're going to look at is conspiracy. Conspiracy. You know, we hear a lot about conspiracy these days. A conspiracy is a secret plan to do harm or even something unlawful. And that is just exactly where we're starting today in our verses. The but that starts verse 1 connects these verses back to chapter 4, that portion that we read a minute ago where Barnabas and others were voluntarily selling their property and giving the money away to those who needed it. Knowing this about Barnabas, knowing what Barnabas has done, how would we consider him? What, what comes to mind when we think of Barnabas and the others who sold their property and voluntarily gave the money away? How would we describe them? Selfless, absolutely. Thoughtful, yes. Very generous, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Benevolent, kind. We, we respect people who make great sacrifices for others. So here where we are in the story, this is important. Jesus has ascended, okay? The Spirit has come. Miracles are happening. Literally thousands of people are coming to Christ. Thousands of new converts. People are giving to the church. But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira. Do you feel that? There's a contrast being set up here. The husband and wife that we're reading about saw the people involved with these miracles. And they saw the respect that Barnabas and others were getting for their extreme generosity. And they thought to themselves, I'd like to have some of that. One commentator says, and I love this, they wanted the credit and prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience. They wanted respect without the sacrifice. So what did they do? They began to conspire in their minds. And we know from Scripture that each person is to give as they see fit and to do it joyfully. This is 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7. Now I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You see, there's nothing wrong with giving less than somebody else. And if that's what had happened in our verses, we would not have this record of Ananias and Sapphira. But what these two did is they conspired and they decided to lie and actually keep back some of the money. You know, occasionally, if you watch the news, you might see a CEO of a company who's about to go to trial or even go to jail for embezzlement. Embezzlement is when you're given funds and money and you use that money for something other than what it was given for. So a CEO may receive money from investors for use of like, you know, creating new products or research and development. But instead of using the money for those purposes, they take that money and what do they do? They, they buy a sports car. They go on vacation. That's embezzlement. And the word that Luke uses in the original language brings that type of connotation. It, it actually implies uh, misappropriation of funds or, or stealing. Luke is trying to 
uh, get us aware that there's something fishy going on with the money here. Okay? And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Everything's going according to plan. You realize Ananias and Sapphira had to list the property, right? They, they had to put the property up for sale. They found the buyer. The buyer had the funds. The money went through. They've got the money. And so now it's time to do what this whole conspiracy was created to do. The money wasn't the goal. Or if the money was the goal, they would have just kept it all. So it's not that they just wanted the money. And helping people wasn't the goal, because if helping people was the goal, they would have done like Barnabas and others and just given all the money to the church. So what was the goal? The goal was the clout, the recognition, the prestige. The goal was getting respect and admiration, self-glorification. It's a temptation that uh, besets all of us, I know, but honestly, it's been a while since I've been your age, and so I really would like your help with this question. What, what would prompt a young person your age these days to conspire in your mind, to come up with this scheme to present yourself in a certain way that's not actually true? Anybody have any examples of what a young person y'all's age might face that you might want to make you present yourself other than what you actually are? Okay, popularity. Absolutely. Oh, sure, sure. That's exactly what we're seeing here. Okay, okay, absolutely. Wanting to fit in. Certainly, certainly. Yes. So we, we know what that's about. So here we have it. The conspiracy has been executed. The lie has been told. And now comes the second stage of sin, which is confrontation. Confrontation. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Like we said, everything was going according to plan. But look, look back down at your verses, if you will. Everything's going according to plan. But verse 3, but Peter said. Here we have another contrast being set up. Something's going on. Peter is about to confront Ananias about his conspiracy. Peter intends to get to the bottom of this. So, if looking at verse 3, who instigated this lie? If we look at verse 3, who, who can we say instigated this lie? Satan, that great tempter. Yes, absolutely. You're right. Okay. Well, Satan filling people's heart, like we see here, is not altogether uncommon in Scripture. In Luke chapter 22, we see Satan filling Judas's heart. Okay, all right, Peter, we got him. We've got the, the culprit for this heinous crime. Let the, let the gavel fall, okay? We got him. Anybody want to read verse 4 for me now? Do I have a volunteer to read verse 4? Yeah, William, go ahead.
So wait a second. Whose feet, whose feet are being held to the fire now? Whose responsibility does verse 4 say this lie was? Ananias, exactly. You're exactly right. It's his feet that are being held to the fire. Peter is essentially saying, look, Ananias, this whole time, this property or this money that was tied up in the property, it's yours. And at no point in time did anybody force your hand in any part of this. This, this is your doing. Why have you conceived this deed in your heart? And notice, that, notice the language there, conceived. Turn over real quickly. I say real quickly. We'll be there for a minute. I shouldn't lie. Uh, turn over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And just to be clear, while you're turning there, who's responsible for this lie? Ananias? Yes, absolutely. Satan is a powerful, powerful tempter, but Satan cannot force us to lie. I want to read to you James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So, Peter says, Satan's involvement in our lives does not absolve us of our responsibility. James is saying that God cannot be blamed for our sin. So that really leaves only one other person in the equation. We ourselves are responsible for our sin. Looking down at James, where does temptation come from? Is it external? Is our temptation external? No. I see you shaking your head. No, no, it's not external. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Sin is a heart issue. Therefore, lying is a heart issue. Uh, Back to Acts, back to Acts chapter 5, and we don't have a whole lot of time to spend on this particular subject, but verse 4 in our verses today is going to be a go-to text to defend the personhood and deity of the Holy Spirit. Basically, you can't lie to something that's not a person, okay? Many people believe that the Holy Spirit is not a person, it's simply a powerful force that God uses to accomplish His will. But we see differently here in our scripture. You, philosophically, you can't lie to anything but a person. Sure, you can lie on your questionnaire or on your uh, you know, application that you're filling out, but you're not lying to the piece of paper that you're writing down. You're lying to the person who's going to receive that. So you can't lie to electricity. You can't lie to a power. You can only lie to a person. But the Holy Spirit is not just a person. The Holy Spirit is also God. Peter says, Ananias, you've not lied to men, but you've lied to God. So the Holy Spirit is the third person of the eternal Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's another question. 
how did Peter how did Peter know Ananias was lying? How did he know to confront him? We're talking about confrontation. How did Peter know to do that? Okay. Absolutely. There's no indication from our text that says that someone slipped him a note or held up a sign in the back. So it's with all the miracles going on, it's a safe assumption that on the context of our verses that, that God informed. It was a supernatural reason that Peter knew Ananias was lying. And God knows all of our scheming. Luke chapter 12, verses 2 through 5 say that there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. Listen here. I say to you, my friend, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You see, when we believe that no one is going to confront us about our lying, about our sinning, we can be tempted to weave a whole web of mess. All types of temptation we can give ourselves over to if we don't believe that we'll ever be confronted about it. But confrontation to sin is as sure as the sun coming up each morning. And you may rest assured going tonight, bed tonight, that uh, you know, the sun has gone down one more time and, and no one has found out about the lies that you've been telling. You, you may sleep easy tonight knowing that. But I promise you, God knows all of our scheming. He knows all of the lies. He knows what we're thinking. He knows our thoughts. God is on to us in our scheming. And there's coming a day when the whole, despite perhaps the whole world being ignorant of your sin, God will confront you. There is no sin that flies under His radar. Now for our third point. After confrontation comes the third stage of sin that you will experience when you lie. And that is consequence. Consequence. You see, they lied to God. Peter tells us that they put the Spirit of the Lord to the test. Now, we see other lies throughout the Bible. Abraham lied about being married to Sarah. Jacob lied about to his dad about being Esau. Excuse me. I lied this week. Matter of fact, I've spent the last several weeks preparing for this message online. And wouldn't you know, this week I'm in Dallas. And what appears to be a homeless person approaches me and asks if I have any, any cash that I can give them. And now usually I don't have cash because, I mean, honestly, who carries cash anymore? I, I mean, usually I don't. But in this instance, I did have seven bucks in my pocket. But I looked this woman square in the eyes and said, I'm sorry, I don't have any. Now, I, I wasn't compelled to give her any money. But the fact of the matter was, just like Ananias, I had the money. It was mine. It was under my control. I could just tell her, no, I, I don't want to give you any money. But I looked at her square in the face, and I lied to her. But what is the difference between my lie, your lie, and Abraham's lie, and this lie that we're looking at tonight, this testing of the Holy Spirit? And, and just to be clear, we're talking about testing the Holy Spirit. We're not necessarily talking about grieving the Holy Spirit which is, of course, the unpardonable sin. 
Well, it's a difficult question, but here's what we can say. Compromising the integrity of the church is a dangerous place to be. What was the consequence for Ananias and Sapphira for testing the Holy Spirit? We're talking about the consequence of lying. What was Ananias and Sapphira's consequence? Absolutely. It was immediate physical death. Immediate physical death. And how did they die? They couldn't breathe. Okay. Okay. The text tells us that they breathed their last. The word just simply means to expire. But we know that it was God who took their life. God took their life. And we know this, and this is kind of not a rabbit trail, but this is a little deep, but this is one of the things I love about the Bible. There was the Old Testament law which would have served as a principle for the early church, okay? And And the law said that anyone cursed of God, anyone who God cursed and they died, their corpse was not to remain in the city for the rest of the day, but it had to be taken outside the city walls immediately. And so as we look, it's kind of an odd thing for Luke to put in there, this back and forth with the young men going and burying Ananias. They come back, and what do you know, as soon as they get back, they got another one to take out. And it's kind of this repetition that Luke's setting up, but he's working hard to tell us something, to, to clue us into something, and that is these two were cursed of God. But a quick side, a very important side note that we'll cover quickly. Notice the dignity that these two were treated with. The young men didn't grab them and throw them in the dumpster out back. They wrapped them up and gave them the appropriate burial that was needed, even burying Sapphira by her husband Ananias. And the takeaway for us for that is, is that vengeance belongs to the Lord. It's, it's not ours to take. It was surprising to me in my study of this verse uh, how many commentators were scared to death at the thought of God taking someone's life? Someone's life. I mean, they, they talked about maybe they got scared and had a heart attack, or they said, you know, Peter, he kind of flies off the handle every once in a while. He probably cursed them. It's probably Peter's fault. Let's blame Peter. Let's throw him under the bus. But they were scared to put the, the responsibility on God for taking these people's lives. Genesis 2.17 The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day of it you eat of it, you will surely die. It's easy to think that the consequences for some of our seemingly trivial sins can be too severe or a little too much. But for this type of thinking, I've found that David Platt has a very helpful illustration. I want to talk about one sin, and we're going to use it in three different circumstances, okay? If you, any of you in here, were to slap me in the face, you're going to get upset, you're going to shed a few tears, but that's likely to be about the end of it. Take that same sin. If you go home and you slap your parents in the face the consequences are going to be a little bit more severe, right? They have the ability to discipline you further than what I can do. 
If we lo- walked out of here tonight and walked down the street and found a police officer and we slapped that police officer in the face, he can arrest you and he can take you to jail. And despite what you think about the man, if you were to slap the President of the United States in the face, I venture to say you'd be taken down by Secret Service. You would lose your life in that moment. Now we're talking about the same sin, but what is the difference? The truth is sin is committed against. It's not about the size of our sin. It's about the size of the one that we sin against. And all of our sins, who are they ultimately against? God. Absolutely. Imagine slapping God in the face. In a way, that's not far from what we're doing every time we misrepresent Him. We misrepresent His character. But you know, fortunately, God may be gracious to us and spare our life for a time, even though He has a rightful claim to our life as us being sinners. But it's undeniable that our sin brings about death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is what? Death. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. If you're here tonight, and you're not in Christ, and you're breathing air into your lungs and your heart is still beating, you're here for a purpose. And your purpose is to hear this, is that every sinner apart from Christ Jesus one day will receive a just consequence for their sin. Romans 3.23, all have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. That's all of us. That's, we all face this consequence. But Christ's death on the cross is God's offer to us, sinners like you and like me, to turn from our sin and to cast our eyes on Christ, to repent and to trust in His atoning sacrifice. In Christ. There will be no more confrontation about your sin, and there will be no more consequence for your sin. This is imputed righteousness, is what the theologians call it. When you repent and you believe in Christ, the consequences for all of your sins would be dealt with by Christ on the cross. And when God looks at you, He no longer sees your guilt and your sin, but He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ applied to your life. As the prophets would say, your sins, though like scarlet, can be washed white as snow. Finally, let's take a closer look at verse 11. This will be a, a sub-point of, of, of a point three. And that is, God allows consequences to correct our lack of fear for His name. Verse 11 says, And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. If we think about James again, when we give in to enticing lust of our flesh and sin is conceived in our hearts, in that moment, what is missing? When sin is conceived in our hearts, what's not in our hearts? Righteousness? Yeah, I would venture to say the fear of God is not in our hearts. 
Yes, if we're willing to sin, then the fear of the Lord is not there. Because, you see, all of our sinning, no matter if it's lying or whatever it is, we all sin in that moment because we fear God less than whatever the circumstance is. And correction is good. God uses public correction to restore godly fear back into His flock. It's not to abuse the sheep. It's to to restore this godly fear. Because that's what uh, verse 11 is all talking about. The earthly consequences of our sins, they can be severe. And truthfully, they can be uncomfortable. But we will do well to appreciate them as gracious correction given to us by the hand of the Lord. Because, you see, lies are conceived in sinful hearts that do not fear God. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, with a regenerated heart, you can put off sin and not have to experience this three-stage sin cycle. In Christ, you're not a slave to this sin cycle of perpetual conspiring, confrontation, and consequence. To close our time while we're in James, I'd like to read to you from chapter 4. Chapter 4 of James. Chapter 4 of James, verses 7 through 10. These will be our concluding applications. Verse 7, chapter 4. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come to you again grateful for your Word. Your Word which can be abrasive. Lord, we, we, we are studying one of the more difficult passages of, of Scripture, one that rubs up against our flesh and, and shows us how we conspire against you and how you confront and, and there are consequences for our action. But we rejoice in Christ that you sent him to this earth to, to take the consequence of our sin for anyone, for all people and anywhere who would repent and believe and find faith in His atoning work on the cross. So, Father, help us to put off the sin of lying. Help us to go forth this week and to be faithful, Father, and and, instill in us fear and respect for Your name. Lord, that we might be Your people, that we might be a pure church, a pure bride, ready for Christ to come and redeem, take back with Him. Lord, bless the remainder of our evening and this time in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.